we want to ask ourselves this morning a very serious question, and that is, what is worship? Now, if you brought your dictionary with you, okay, you didn't bring your dictionary. Well, those of you who have a phone, you have your dictionary, don't you? Well, if you looked it up in a dictionary, what is worship? Then you'd see something like this. Worship is reverent honor and homage paid to God or a sacred personage. Sounds like dictionary speak, doesn't it? Or to any object regarded as sacred. Or it is also considered a formal or ceremonialist rendering of such honor or homage. In other words, you could express it in, they attended worship this morning. Now I've heard and actually contrived a a number of definitions as to what worship is. One of those that seemed to be the simplest to me was one that I read some years ago, and that is that worship is our response to God's revelation of himself. And and that sounded really, really good until I realized that it's a, a little bit incomplete. Because when God reveals himself, his will, and his ways to us, we can respond in worship, but we don't always. And in fact, some people respond in many different ways. For instance, some people respond in absolute anger. When God reveals himself, people don't want him to be there, and so they become angry over how God has revealed himself to them. Some people become guilty. They, they just have an overwhelming sense of, of guilt and shame. And that doesn't lead them to worship. It leads them just to wallow in the mud. Other people respond to God with complete indifference. And this is kind of scary because Jesus said, if you're neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. And people who are indifferent are really hard to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ because they just don't care. If God's there, he's there. If he's not, they're not worried about it. And so a lot of people, when God reveals himself, they're just completely indifferent to it. Now, there are people who respond in religious ways that aren't necessarily worship. For instance, there are people who have a a works-based kind of religion where they're going to work and earn their way to God. And if they get enough good things in one column and keep enough bad things out of the other column, then they're acceptable to God and God will, will let them have a relationship with him. There are other people who have kind of, uh, we talked about guilt and shame. There are people who bring that over into their religion. And their religion is based on feeling bad. And, and I've literally heard people say as they go out on Sunday morning, if I, if, if I don't go out feeling like my toes have been stomped, if I don't go out feeling guilty, I haven't been to church. And that's a shame because neither of those is worship. And Romans 1 tells us that God has made himself known, but that people kind of created a distorted kind of of worship where they worship the the creature rather than the creator. Or they worship something, all these false, fake religions that are out there. And then, of course, there's the, the humanist religion. That is, it puts us at the center. Well, all those are responses to God, but they're not worship. And so if we were to to ask ourselves, what then is worship? We might come up with something like this. Worship is our humble acknowledgement of the worth and worthiness of the God who has revealed himself to us in nature, in his word, by his spirit, 
and in his son Jesus Christ. Now, not as concise, but perhaps a little more accurate in capturing what worship really is. You see, worship is never, ever, ever, ever man-focused. It is always God-focused. If we miss that, we miss the boat. Worship is never defined by or confined to a certain place or a certain time. Worship is not contingent upon a sermon or a song. Worship does not depend on stained glass or an elevated platform. Worship is a daily, continual attitude of the heart that is magnified and amplified as God's people join together to corporately express their hearts to God. And so there's a worship that is personal. As a matter of fact, when we come together, it should be a celebration of what we have been having and experiencing all during the week. Some people see worship as kind of their spiritual fix. I come on Sunday morning, I get my fix, get my batteries charged, get my tank filled, and then during the week, I'm nursing it. And by the time I hit Friday and Saturday, I'm running on fumes, just waiting for Sunday morning again. Well, you may be worshiping on Sunday morning, but you're missing something great, grand, something that God desires for you, and that is a life of worship, where you live in relationship to him, where you commune with him, where he speaks to you, and you respond to him in appropriate ways. It doesn't mean that you go through your life constantly on your knees It doesn't mean that you go through your life ignoring the world around you, not going to work, not going to school, hiding in some monastery somewhere. No, it's God is a part of all that we do. Whether it's washing dishes or raking leaves or going to work or going to school or whatever it is, God's a part of that. And worship becomes a part of our lives so that when we come on Sunday morning, we don't come empty. We come filled And ready to overflow. Ready to explode before God with our worship. I like what Lamar Boschman wrote about worship. He said, worship is first and foremost for his benefit, not ours. Though it's marvelous to discover that in giving him pleasure, we ourselves enter into what can become our richest and most wholesome experience in life. This morning... We want to rediscover worship. And in rediscovering it, then actually being able to do it. Being free to worship. I want to begin in, a, in an odd place. And this is not in something that was said in a church service, in a sermon, not something that was done in a synagogue or in the temple. I want to begin with some words that were spoken in a place called Samaria, not in a temple, but by a well, and not before a congregation of listeners, but with a single, sinful, Samaritan woman. 
You see, Jesus had gone through Samaria intentionally. Now, Jews didn't mingle in Samaria, so that was already odd. Jews and Samaritans didn't mix. And, but Jesus had gone through Samaria. He had sent his disciples in to get lunch, and this woman had come to the well. Now, there's another issue because men and women didn't mix unless it was someone with whom you were related. You didn't, you didn't just talk to them. And in fact, it was a little different because she had come to the well in the heat of the day because she couldn't come early in the morning because of the ridicule that she would receive because of her unethical, immoral lifestyle. And so let's add all this up because this is very unusual that we would get such a profound statement about worship from a situation like this. Jesus is in Samaria talking to a woman who he full well knows is immoral, and he is the holy son of God. Kind of an interesting place for us to start. But in the course of a conversation, as he begins to probe into the depths of this woman's life, and she gets a little bit defensive, and she starts religious talk, she brings up where you should worship. In other words, you Jews, you worship in Jerusalem at the temple there. But, but we Samaritans, we worship on Mount Gerizim, where our forefathers worshiped. Who's right? I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation with someone about, about Jesus Christ and what they wanted to do was then talk, kind of take the conversation on a, a little bit of an angle where they wanted to talk about religious stuff. Well, what about what, about what happened back in the Inquisition? Well, I wasn't around then. Can't really blame me for that. Well, what about when Christians, you know, the the Protestant and Catholics were fighting up in Ireland? Well, I wasn't over there then. But it's that kind of tangent that people want to take you off on now. She's attempting to do that. But out of that comes one of the most profound statements about worship ever uttered. And it comes from none other than Jesus himself. In John chapter 4, beginning in verse 21, this is what we read. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus is clarifying something for this woman that is absolutely important for us to hear this morning. And that is the externals of worship are not as important as the internals of worship. The externals, the place, the time, the location, how you dress, that's not as important as the internals of worship. And so Jesus is completely reframing the debate. And Jesus is going to insist on two things, that true worship is in spirit and in truth. First of all, Jesus insists that worship is a spiritual response to God who is spirit. It is a spiritual response to God who is spirit. It is not merely an emotional response, though you may have a lot of emotions. You may cry, you may laugh. It is not merely a physical response, though you may respond in worship in physical ways. You may may kneel, 
You may close your eyes. You may lift your hands. You may clap. Those are all physical responses. But worship is not first and foremost a physical response. Worship is not contrived or coerced. I can't make you worship. Daniel can't make you worship. You know who's responsible for your worship? You. True worship. It leads us to act, but it is not a performance for the sake of God or for the sake of others. We're not here trying to impress God by how we're dressed or how we sing or how we look or how much money we put in the offering plate. And we're not here to impress anyone else with that either. That is not worship. Jesus insists that worship is to be in truth too. He insists that worship is tied to God's revealed truth. Now God has revealed himself outwardly to us in nature. We see it all around us. But he's also revealed himself to us inwardly. The Holy Spirit speaks to us draws us even before we are believers the holy spirit is working on us jesus has revealed himself to us in his word and ultimately god's revealed in his son jesus christ now listen when we are ignorant of who god is when we are ignorant of who god is it leads to a shallowness in our worship or to no worship at all. And that's why it's important that we not only worship in spirit, or it's not just a matter of having our hearts right and our minds right, it's also a matter that we worship in truth. And the only way that we can worship in truth is to come to deeper and deeper understanding of who God is. Let me give you an example. You walk out on a cloudless, starry night. The moon's not yet up. And you look up and you gaze at the stars in the heavens and you are overwhelmed in that moment with the glory of God. That is worship as God reveals himself to you. You're riding down the road, you're listening to a Christian radio station, a song comes on. Perhaps it is tied to some event in your life. Perhaps you'd never heard it before, but you listen and you hear those songs and you are so overwhelmed by the message, not just the music, but the message that you worship. God has revealed himself to you and it leads to worship. Or you open his word and you begin to read and you come to a portion where God just jumps out at you and you stop. And you say, thank you, God, for revealing that to me. My life will never be the same. And it is worship. Our worship is informed by who God is. It is not just any old response to God. It is an appropriate response to his revelation to us. A worship that is informed by who God is is deep and grows deeper and deeper and deeper, but a worship, but a worship that doesn't understand who God is or is content to know just a fraction. That worship is shallow. And you just skim along the surface 
And you wonder. Why do I not worship? Like that person on the stage whose eyes are closed tightly and tears are streaming down and their fists are clenched as they, as they, as they connect with God. And you go, why is my worship not like that? Or you look at the person next to you. And they are worshiping, singing, praying, whatever it is, as if they're the only person in the room. You ask, why why is mine not like that? Why is mine just skimming along the surface? I want to tell you that the reason may well be that you're not worshiping in spirit and or in truth. And we want to consider a little bit more about what that means. You see, each week, millions upon millions of people gather in worship services, some held in grand cathedrals, other held in huts with dirt floors, but they leave unchallenged, unmoved, and unchanged. They'd hoped that just this once they might catch a glimpse of the glory of God or that they might sense a portion of His presence that today they might leave saying, I met with God. But instead they walk out going, maybe next week. And worship for them has become like playing the lottery. They buy a ticket every week but they never win. Maybe next time. Are you one of those millions? Would you like it to be real? Because I'm telling you, it can be. I'd like to share some truths with you about worship as we rediscover worship this morning. They're simple and they're biblical and I believe if you will contemplate, meditate upon these, and take these to God, that these will radically transform your worship. First is this. God is seeking you. I don't know if that surprises any of you or not. You thought you were here seeking God, didn't you? Did you know that God is seeking you? Consider what Jesus said to the woman at the well. The kind of worshipers that the Father seeks, that the Father is looking for. God is looking for, God is seeking the heart of a true worshiper. He is seeking you this morning. And see, that completely flips the equation around. I thought I was seeking God. When all the time, the good shepherd has left the 99 in the sheepfold to come out to find me. But I don't deserve to be found, do I? You see, people here don't know what I've done this week. They don't know the thoughts that have been in my mind. They don't know the sins I've committed. They don't know the corners I've cut. Surely the good shepherd would not be out looking for me. That's why I'm here seeking him. 
Because I know, I know how far I've fallen. I know how unworthy I am. But just to imagine that God would be seeking me, knowing who I am, just like the woman at the well where he could see through her, where he could see all the way to her soul. He knew every relationship that she had had, every bed that she had been in. He knew every time she'd faltered, every time she had failed. And Jesus was there seeking her. God is here this morning seeking you, and he knows what you're like, and he's still seeking you. And when we can take that switch in our minds and flip it from worship is me seeking God to worship is coming where God is seeking me, it can absolutely transform our worship. God seeks us, though, not because he has some need that should be filled. God's, see, God doesn't need anything. God is fulfilled already. He's perfect. But he seeks worshipers because he delights in our worship. Why? Because that's what we're made for. That's what God made us for. God made us to be in right relationship to him. And therefore, he delights when we are being the people he called us to be. It is, in a sense, the same joy that we get when our children and our grandchildren walk in the way they ought to walk and do the things they ought to do. When God looks at us and sees that we are there in spirit and truth to worship Him, not just on Sundays, but every day of the week, it brings joy to the heart of God. He seeks you because He delights in your worship and He delights in you. The second truth is this, God is revealing himself to you. God's not playing hide and seek with you. God's not behind a tree somewhere just hoping you'll stumble upon him. God's not, you know, underneath one of these table skirts out here like our children do every once in a while. God's not hiding from you. God is revealing himself to you. Psalm 19 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out to all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. God is not silent. God is not hiding. The heavens declare His glory. But he's also placed in us an inherent awareness that he exists. And that creates in us a desire to want to know him. Do you realize that the the greatest argument for the existence of God is that we believe in him? It is near universal in every culture that people believe in some kind of supreme being, some kind of God who is greater. They may not know who it is, but they have this belief that he must exist and they need to relate to him. God has placed that in us. And when we walk out and we get a sense of awe and wonder at crashing waves or birds singing or how the frost is etched on our windshield the brilliance of a beautiful day like today. That's God saying, here I am. I'm here. I'm revealing myself to you. Here I 
am. He's not hiding. He's revealing himself to you. The third truth is this. The goal of worship is the glory of God. The goal of worship is the glory of God. Now, when I enter into a worship service, I bring with me my needs and my desires, just like you. And when I leave a worship service and my needs have been met and my desires have been filled, then I think, okay, I've worshiped. But is that really what worship is about? Having my needs met and my desires filled. Is it what I get out of a worship experience? Is it about my enjoyment of the music or my learning from the message? Or the lightness of my step as I walk out the door? Is it about getting the right feeling? I heard one pastor say, listen, if all you want from a worship service is a feeling, then ask your wife to stomp on your toe about every five minutes. That's a feeling. May not be the one you were looking for. But there's so many people who walk out the doors of countless churches And they're disappointed because they didn't get the feeling. I didn't feel that I worshipped. As if a feeling is what worship really is. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you do, Coming here on Sundays, being a part of a Sunday morning Bible study, being a part of a grace group, washing dishes, mowing grass, raking leaves, doing laundry, load after load after endless load, vacuuming up dog hair. Do it all for the glory of God. I was telling my grace group the other night, in the, when it's raining and it's dark and it's cold and I wake up and have to take my dog out in the morning, I'm not overly happy about that. I said, but let me, let me just think. If that were Jesus' dog, would I feel different? I mean, let's think about it. If I had the opportunity to walk Jesus' dog, do you think I'd really care whether it was raining or whether it was dark or whether it was cold? Not if I'm doing it for Jesus. Now take that thinking over into all that we do in life. Students, they go to school for the glory of God. They're saying, no, I go because they make me. It's It's a total attitude shift. Whatever we do, we do it for the glory of God. And when it comes to worship... The feelings that we get, the truths that we learn, the inspiration we receive, they're all fringe benefits. They are not the essence of worship. What truly matters in worship is that God is glorified in our response to Him, whether it's in what we do or say or sing or think. And may it never, ever be said of us, these people honor me with their lips. But their hearts are far from me. The fourth truth is this. Worship is costly. 
We don't often think about worship being costly, do we? I mean, it's free, right? I mean, we can, we can worship at home. We can worship in the shower. We can worship as we sit down in the den with our Bibles. We can worship as we go out for a walk. We can worship on the lake. We can worship on the golf course. We can come here and we worship, and it's all free, unless you consider when the offering baskets are passed, that is some kind of a fee for worship, which is not. If worship is free, then what's the deal with it being costly? Worship is what we offer to God. It is our appropriate response to Him. It is not to be offered with half-hearted indifference. When the Jews would come to the temple, they would bring with them a sacrifice. They brought a lamb. It could not be one that was blind or lame or had any spot or blemish at all. It was to be as perfect as a lamb could be. If they brought something other than that, it was rejected. And they would bring that lamb and they would offer the very best of their flock, often the firstborn of their flock. Sacrifice for them was a part of worship. Well, what about today? I am so glad that you didn't bring bulls and goats and lamb and doves for us to sacrifice this morning, a blood sacrifice. I'm really eternally grateful for that. And you don't have to because... Jesus offered the ultimate blood sacrifice as he went to the cross and died for our sins, paying the price, the once-for-all sacrifice. But does that mean now that sacrifice has no part in my worship? King David said something quite a few years back. The situation was this. There had been a plague throughout Israel. It was David's fault. And finally, David prayed to the Lord, and the plague stopped at the threshing floor, the house and the place of business of a guy named Arona. And David went there with his heart's desire was to, to offer a sacrifice to God that he'd stop the plague right there. And so he goes to this guy, and this guy is a, a faithful subject of David, a faithful part of the kingdom of Israel. And he says, listen, he said, King, he said, I tell you what, you can have the place. You can have the, the oxen that I have that you went for the threshing of the grain. You can have the oxen for the sacrifice. And you can take the yokes that they have around their necks. You can use those for the wood. I'll give it all to you in order to make the sacrifice. And this is how David responded to that. No, he said, I insist on paying the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me Nothing. I will not offer God something that costs me nothing. That is not a sacrifice. Sacrifice is part of worship, and it echoes down through the New Testament. Let me share just a few verses with you. In Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies... As living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, that is your spiritual act of worship. Offering yourself as a living sacrifice is your spiritual act of worship. In Hebrews 13, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. 
the fruit of the lips that confess his name and do not forget to do good and share with others for with such sacrifices God is pleased. And so here, there's a sacrifice of our praise. Do we think of praise as being a sacrifice? Well, perhaps we do when it seems like the whole world has tumbled down around us. Then to be able to go in the presence of God and offer praise, that's a sacrifice. And then in 1 Peter 2, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I want you to think for a moment. Is worship a sacrifice for you? I'm not talking about the little bit of time you lose sleeping on Sunday morning. I'm not talking about the amount of money that you put in the offering plate. I'm not talking about having to get up and take a shower when you'd rather not. Is worship a sacrifice for you? And I know you get something out of it. Yes, and that's, that's the byproduct. That's the, uh, that's the fringe benefit of it. But when you gather for God's people in a place like this, Do you give yourself fully to worship? Or are you holding back? Do you come with your heart prepared for worship? Are you ready to encounter God? Do you come with eagerness and anticipation? What is God going to do today? How is God going to reveal himself today? Do you expect to encounter the Lord Or if it happens, does it seem like an accident? Do we come to pour ourselves out before God? Or are we only satisfied if God pours himself out into us? Do we come to lay ourselves bare before him and to be open and honest about who we are? Or are we hiding? Do we forsake all things just to be close to him? Folks, I know the temperature is not always perfect in here. The music is not always what you'd choose. And sometimes the sermon, it can run a little longer than anticipated. I also know that you come in with things on your mind. Hiding around the corners in your mind are worries that you brought with you. And there are lots of things that are distracting you. Lots of things that occupy your attention. But can you, like David, say with integrity, I will not give to God something that costs me nothing? Are you here this morning as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, or did you come just to get your fix to carry you through to next Sunday? Folks, I'm not here to be accusatory, but I am here to be provocative. I want to provoke you to consider what worship is and to worship.